The scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. If you can grab a seat. Well, good morning, everyone. My, I'm very grateful to be with you all this morning. My name is Andrew McGill, but you can just call me McGill because there's already an Andrew that works here. And can I just stop and say how cool it is to have my own mother read scripture for a sermon that I'm about to preach? That's, that's really a peculiar honor for me. Uh, I love that. I love that. Um, But uh, I am very privileged to be opening up the Word of God with you this morning, and I want to invite you to open up to the book of Mark, chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. And as you do that, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever felt alone? And for the introverts in the room, you probably are thinking, well, that sounds kind of nice right now, actually. And for us extroverts, you probably just flinched a little bit at the word alone, but this is kind of what I mean. Here's a story from my life. Back in the year of 2015, in the month of September, I met my wife, Maddie. Yeah, that's a big deal. Let me tell you. Let me tell you. And, uh, In 2015, to paint a little picture of what's going on, uh, I was on either my second or third attempt at my junior year of college at Grace University, and uh, I was throwing a housewarming party, and my room was in the basement, not in a room in the basement, just in the basement, like you walk down the stairs and that was it. And I had a mattress thrown into the corner with no sheets on it. And it just kind of laid there. It kind of looked like a squatter was living there. And uh, I also had a man bun at the time. And so we can safely assume that I peaked in September of 2015. And then there's Maddie. Maddie was in doctorate school to uh, get her occupational therapy degree. Uh, She played four years of collegiate softball. She was the vice president of her class. She's smart. She's confident. She's beautiful. She's driven. And she had sheets on her bed. And so at this housewarming party, she's walking through and getting the tour. And she sees my room and goes, 
what creature lives in this space? And uh, my roommate, Sean, who's, who's here this morning too, uh, he introduced us and sparks flew. I tell you, she saw me and goes, that's, that's the one. That's him. That's him. But after a week or so of, of texting, I called her and asked her out on a date, and she said yes. And about six months later, we were engaged. And then about a year later, we were married. So January 7th, 2017, 1717, so I'd never forget it. We finally got married. I had met the person that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. Here's my best friend, my companion, the person that points me closer to Jesus every day. The Lord gave me someone that I love more than life itself. And after so many years without a wife, we were finally married. And my days of sleeping alone on a mattress with no sheets were over. I finally had sheets. But something interesting happened that day. Something interesting happened when we got married. You see, when God created Adam and Eve, he put Adam into a very deep sleep and then formed Eve. And when Adam woke up from his slumber, the first words that he utters was a poem or he busted out into song. And he goes, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, this is it. You see, Adam recognized that Eve, his connection to Eve was so much deeper than anything else he'd ever experienced. So too, when I got married, I recognized that my connection to my wife was so much deeper than anything I'd ever experienced before. She was bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. I felt it deep in my spirit that we were connected. In that moment, all of the sappy love songs made sense to me. In that moment, my whole life took on a whole different meaning. God had given me someone that knew me on a spiritual level. And I had for the very first time the deepest and most intimate relationship that's possible between two people. And I say this all because the day after we got back from our honeymoon, my my wife left for a three-week mission trip to the Dominican Republic. So here I was, freshly married, experiencing all of the wonderful and radical spiritual experiences of being married. And that first night, my bed felt empty. I felt alone. My heart ached because the bone of my bone, the flesh of my flesh was not there. And so I felt alone. And I wonder if you've ever felt something like that. Maybe it wasn't a spouse leaving on a mission trip, but maybe you sent all of your kids off to college and your house is just empty. Maybe all your friends planned a a big long trip and didn't invite you and so you're just alone. Or maybe you don't feel like you have any friends and so you feel alone most of the time. Whatever your circumstances might be, feeling alone is something that we all experience at some point in our life. And I think one of the deepest and greatest fears that we have is truly being alone, devoid of all relationship and intimacy. 
That first night I spent alone as a married man was so heavy on my heart because I found out I have a very deep fear of being alone. And as we look at our text this morning, Jesus is in the final hours before his crucifixion. He knows full well that the very next morning he's going to be hanging on the cross to die. That very next morning, he, is, he knows full well that he is going to have the entirety of God's wrath poured upon him. And he did it alone. But he did it for us so that we would never be truly alone. As we're going to see, Jesus is going to be completely isolated in his final hours so that we never have to be in ours. Jesus is also going to submit perfectly to the Father because we never could. And Jesus is going to triumph over the things that come towards him so that we can also triumph and join in with him. So if you're a note taker, I have three things I want to point out in our passage this morning. The first is the isolation of Jesus. The second is the submission of Jesus. And then the third thing is the confidence of Jesus. So the isolation, the submission, and the confidence of Jesus. Let me pray, and then we'll jump into our text. Jesus, this morning we are here to uh, examine some of your final hours uh, before your crucifixion. And I, I ask that your message would be spoken clearly to the hearts of your people this morning. Uh, would the words that come out of my mouth be from you? And would you do a mighty work this morning? Jesus, would we be comforted to know that you were abandoned so that you could always be with us? Would you encourage us that we can submit to the will of God because you first did it? And would we have hope that all of your promises are true? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So let's look at our text. Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 38 to kick off. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. He said, Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Let's pause there. So this scene, it takes place right after what Andrew preached about last week. Last week, Jesus celebrated the Passover meal where he broke bread with his disciples and then he led them in a hymn and uh, then took them out to the Mount of Olives. In the passage that is right before this one, Jesus tells his disciples that they're actually all going to abandon him. Jesus knows that the going is about to get really tough. And all of his friends are going to abandon him, and he's going to have to do this alone. And after he says that, he leads them into this place called Gethsemane, which means oil press in Hebrew. And I can't 
help but think that Mark gave us that little detail on purpose. You see, Israel is often referred to as an olive tree. And Jesus brings them to a place where olives go to be crushed and pressed. And I think that imagery alone should have been enough for the disciples to go, wait a second, this is what Jesus is talking about. We're getting really close to the death of Jesus. And then you couple that with what he said at the Passover meal and what Andrew preached about last week, where he said his body was about to be broken and his blood poured out for them. The disciples should have been on high alert, but it says that they were asleep. So when they get to Gethsemane, Jesus tells the disciples to wait while he prays. And then he takes his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, with him and commands them to keep watch and pray. But look at what Jesus says in verse 34. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Jesus' soul was very sorrowful even to death. In the Luke account, Luke records Jesus as being in such agony that he is sweating blood. And I have to ask the question, what darkness is so great that the Son of God is moved to such agony? What horror is so terrible that God himself sweats blood? Mark gives us the answer, I think, in verse 36. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Mark says that it was a cup that Jesus shuddered at. But it wasn't a literal cup that we might drink water from. It was, it was a metaphor. Jesus was talking about the righteous wrath of God that had accumulated against the sins of man of all time, past, present, and future. So Jesus' anguish in this scene comes from what is about to happen to him. He knew that from this point forward, he was going to be drinking the cup of wrath described in places like uh, Isaiah 51 or Jeremiah 25, and he knew that he had to do it all alone, without help from his disciples and without help from the Father. And we know this because look at Jesus' prayer. He says, remove this cup from me. He doesn't say remove this cup from us. He doesn't say remove this cup from them. It was Jesus' mission from day one to take the cup of wrath and drink it dry. And he had to do it completely alone because he is the only one that could do it and not deserve it. You see, Jesus stood in this garden fully man and fully God. He's perfect in every way without a trace of sin. And even though Peter, James, and John said that they would drink the cup with him, Jesus knew that if they drank it, they would deserve it. They would deserve the wrath of God. No matter how small their sin was or how large it was, they deserved to drink the cup of wrath because they had sinned. And the only way that Jesus could complete his mission to save people like Peter, James, and John, and like you and me, to deliver us from isolation 
and connect us to the Father was if he did it alone. He alone had to drink the cup of wrath dry so we wouldn't have to. And that's what made Jesus sweat blood. And I'm sorry if, this, if it feels like I'm belaboring this point, but I don't want us to miss it. Jesus had to do this completely alone so that we wouldn't have to. He had to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He prayed to his Father, if there's any other way, let it be so. But the Father said that there wasn't. And that Jesus had to drink it. And can you imagine being in Jesus' sandals in that situation? Where he goes to the garden to seek comfort from his Father only to find agony. To the kiddos in the room, have you ever been given a plate of food that you didn't really want to eat? So like maybe Brussels sprouts or liver and onions? Ew, gross. And then your mom and dad said, you can't leave the table until you eat it? Have they ever done that to you? They used to do that to me. But then when they weren't looking, you'd take your Brussels sprout and throw it under the table and hope the dog eats it. You know what I'm saying? That's kind of what is happening here with Jesus. Jesus has the punishment for all of our sins before him. And he can't leave until he pays for them all. But he doesn't have a dog to throw food onto under the table. He has to do it all alone. But he does it. He does it anyway because he doesn't want us to be punished for our sins. Jesus alone drinks the cup of wrath alone so that we don't have to. And that's good news. Providence, the cup mentioned in this passage, contained within it the entirety, the totality of the wrath of God. And Jesus drank it dry, every last drip of it. A pastor in Minneapolis says it this way. There at Golgotha, where the cross is, our Savior drained God's cup of burning anger down to the dregs. God poured out his wrath, full strength, undiluted, onto his son. And Paul summarizes it, summarizes the meaning of this great event this way. He says, for our sake, he made him to be sin." Who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for us so that he could extend the cup of God's fellowship to us. It might include suffering, but certainly not wrath. Now we get God. We get the sweet, satisfying reality of his eternal fellowship in Jesus through the Holy Spirit. This is the cup we drink now and forever. This is the cup that we offer to those who don't know yet Jesus. Imploring them in God's mercy, come drink this cup with us because Jesus drank that cup for us. Providence, Jesus alone drank that cup in our place so that we would never again be alone. Jesus was alone in his darkest hour so that we wouldn't have to be in ours. Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Because he drank that cup, 
anyone who believes in him gets the full presence of God. Anyone who believes in him gets the full presence of the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. So no matter if you sent your kids off to college, or you don't feel like you have any friends, or you are without your spouse, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are never alone. And he is always with you. My first point was the isolation of Jesus. Jesus was alone and took the cup alone so that you would never have to be alone. My second point is the submission of Jesus. Jesus doesn't begrudgingly take this cup with an attitude like, well, if you guys won't, then I suppose I'll have a sip. No, he says, I'm going to take all of it out of submission to the will of God. Look back at verse 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what he will. Jesus asks the Father to take the cup away from him, but his whole prayer is in this submission to the will of the Father. And at first glance, we can read this and go, wait, what Jesus wants is different from what the Father wants. How can Jesus contradict the Father? I thought God was supposed to be one, and I think Mark lets us into the mystery and kind of explains it by how he words everything, by how Jesus words everything. Look at what he says. He starts by saying, Abba, Father. Jesus uses the affectionate and family term for dad. It's like if your child were to come up to you and say, Dad, can I have something? Jesus reveals that at the heart of his relationship with the Father, it is his dad. And I want to quickly address something. By, him, by Jesus doing that, it in no way makes him less God than the Father. Jesus' submission to the Father in no way lessens his position within the Trinity. When Jesus submits to the Father, it is because Jesus is perfectly humble. It is a willful submission. And for example, to kind of help explain this a little bit, Andrew and Jared are co-pastors here at Providence. And technically, Jared oversees the scattered church, so think city groups or the prayer walk this afternoon and so on and so forth. Well, Andrew might come up to Jared and say, hey, I think this would work really well within city groups, but like, I'll trust you and I'll follow you, whatever you think is best. And in that moment, in no way is Andrew less of a pastor of Providence, and in no way is Jared more of a pastor at Providence. It is Andrew willfully submitting to the authority of Jared. So too, when Jesus approaches the Father, and willfully submits to him, Jesus is no less God than the Father. And he approaches him in prayer. He reveals his relationship with the Father, submits his request before the Father, and then surrenders his will to the Father. Do you see this? Jesus starts in humility, requests in humility, and then submits everything he has in humility. Mark is showing that Jesus' ultimate desire, 
His ultimate goal is to carry out the will of the Father. To do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Mark gives us more evidence of Jesus' submission. Look with me at verses 39 through 41. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? And we'll stop there. In our passage, Mark doesn't just say that Jesus submits to the Father's will once, but three times. And in the Bible, the number three often signifies completeness and wholeness. And so Mark is trying to tell us, and he's wanting us to see that Jesus is completely and totally submitting to the will of God. Essentially, Jesus' total submission to the will of the Father is on our behalf. Because if ever there was a time of great temptation in Jesus' life, as he peers into the cup of wrath that he is about to drink, if there was ever a time for him to say, no, I'm good. I don't really want to do that. This was it. Because Jesus is fully God, he knows the depth of the wrath that is to come. Because it's also his wrath. But isn't it incredible that he still submits himself to it? And I can't help but see this comparison between Jesus in this garden and Adam and Eve in their garden. In the face of temptation... Jesus submits himself perfectly to the will of the God, uh, the will of the Father, where Adam gave into temptation. Adam saw the fruit as something to be desired, where Jesus saw submitting to the will of God as being something to desire to be desired. Jesus saw obedience to God as something to be de- be desired, and Adam didn't. Do you guys see this comparison? Therefore. As one man, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Jesus' perfect and complete submission to the Father was on our behalf His righteous obedience in the garden stands in stark contrast to our disobedience. And I don't want us to miss this. Jesus does this. Jesus puts on display for us to show that in the face of unimaginable difficulty, in the face of unimaginable temptation, if you are in Christ you too can submit to the will of God and triumph over it. Because we know the full story of the gospel and what goes on here. Jesus is obedient unto death on the cross. But he didn't stay dead. We're about to celebrate how he rose from the grave victorious over death. So now when we are faced with unimaginable difficult circumstances we too can humbly submit to the will of God knowing, one, that the wrath that was awaiting us is there no more. 
because Jesus has taken it. And two, because Jesus surely lives, we will also surely live. So I don't, I don't know where that hits you this morning. Maybe you're faced with an extremely difficult circumstance. Maybe something is so overwhelmingly difficult, you just don't even know how you are going to make it another day. And may you find comfort in knowing that your Savior can sympathize with you. Jesus has been in such agony that he is sweating blood over about over what is to come. Or maybe you went through a harsh separation from somebody you loved. May you find comfort in knowing that Jesus too experienced that separation, but now because of his separation, you now live with him. Maybe you are totally unsure of what your future holds, and may you find comfort in knowing that Jesus took the worst possible outcome of your future for you. No matter what is going on in this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, then because of his submission, he knows, one, what you are going through, and two, he is with you through it all. More than anything, though, I want you to leave this place with a confidence in Christ. In the isolation of Jesus, through his perfect submission, Jesus approaches what is about to happen to him in total confidence. Look at the last little bit of 41 and 42. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest talking to the disciples? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is to be is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus ends this prayer scene by finding his disciples sleeping, and instead of being angry or upset or surprised, Jesus essentially says, all right, get up, let's take it on. Let's take the bull by the horns and let's get after it. But where does he get that confidence from? He was just sweating blood. Where, he's certainly not getting it from his friends and his disciples because most of them were sleeping. Judas is about to betray him. And Peter, in a couple hours, is going to deny him in front of a little girl. So it's most certainly not from his disciples. But where does he get it? He knows that he's about to drink the cup of wrath. And he takes it on with confidence. Not with fear. Not with timidity but with confidence. And the only place that he can draw his confidence from is from the perfect promises of God himself. Jesus draws his confidence from the promises of God. Because, I mean, think about it. All throughout Mark, all throughout Jesus' life, as we've been studying it and preaching it, Jesus has been foretelling of this coming kingdom where he will be alive. Even last week, Andrew talked about how Jesus will be drinking a new cup in the new kingdom. You see, Jesus had the assurance of the promises of God to draw his confidence from. And this is what I want to leave you with. Through unimaginable temptation, unimaginable suffering, and incredible difficulties, 
Jesus did for us what we couldn't do ourselves. He took all of the cross, all of the wrath of God in a humble act of confidence in God doing exactly what he said he was going to do. Jesus took the wrath, the cup of wrath, and drank it dry because he knew that death could not hold him. Jesus endured the pain of separation because he knew that the darkness could not contain his light. Jesus took on the cross because of the joy of you and me being connected that was before him. And because Jesus did that, if you are in Christ, you too can take on unimaginable temptation and triumph over it. If you are in Christ, you can take on unimaginably difficult circumstances and triumph over them. But please, please, please do not mishear me. You alone cannot endure it. There was only one man that could ever do it alone, and that was Jesus. And Jesus did it alone so that you never have to. Jesus did it alone because we never could. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Did you catch that? If you are in him, he it is that will bear much fruit. He it is that will live. But apart from from him, we can do nothing. Providence, I want you to know that if you are in Christ, you are never alone. Even in your darkest hour, even when it feels like you are alone, if you are in Christ, you are not alone because you have God himself dwelling within you. And I want you to know that submitting to the will of God the perfect will of God, no matter the circumstances, can only lead to life because Jesus has defeated your death. And you can do all of this in confidence because God's promises are always true. Jesus, yes, died on the cross, but next week we will celebrate that he did not remain there. His promises are always true. So let me pray. Father, thank you that your promises are always true. Jesus, thank you for drinking the cup of wrath so that we never have to. And now you extend to us the cup of fellowship with you and with one another. God, I pray that you would comfort us this morning in knowing that if we are in you, we are never alone. God, would you encourage us to submit because we know that it can only lead to life. And would you give us hope that your promises are always true and that you have proven that by coming back from the grave. God, thank you for all that you do and all that you have done. In the name of Jesus, amen.